have Dr. Raywat Dianandan on the channel, and he's going to give us an update on all things COVID-19. I know that we've all heard a lot about COVID-19, but in the last little while, some of the viewers have been saying that they would like an update and they would like some more information on maybe where we are at with the pandemic and also what what people can or should be doing right now. And so Dr. Dan Anden has been on the channel quite a few times before. He is an excellent source of evidence-based information. He has not deviated from his message at all since 2020. And so Dr. Dan Anden, I'm just so happy to have you back on the channel. Thanks for taking the time today. No problem. As we we're talking about before, I'm I'm a little bit medicated right now. So when you said he's an excellent source of, I thought you were going to say fiber. <laughs> well, maybe that too. But today we'll talk about, you know, information. And if you want to throw in some nutritional advice, you know, we're all we're open to that. I know you do share your recipes online. So if you want more information about nutrition and instant pot recipes, uh, you're also a good source for that. Dr. Dianan, where are we at with the COVID-19 pandemic? It seems like we heard a lot about all these variants of concern in 2020, 2021. Right. We're still hearing about variants of concern. I think that the message starts to get a little bit it all sounds the same. So earlier this year, WHO had declared that the emergency was over. And that was misinterpreted by many to say the pandemic is over. The pandemic is not over. What does that even mean? So a pandemic has a soft definition. It's when the incidence of a particular disease is more than you would otherwise expect in multiple parts of the world at the same time. That is still ongoing. What the WHO meant was that we've entered a new phase of the disease where we have sufficient tools to uh, control its spread, and now it's up to individual nations to put those tools into practice so that we can get on with our lives. The pandemic is not over. COVID is not over. It's just that uh, we're not going to be shutting down society anymore. But to talk about variants, first let's talk about how we classify these variants we talk about variants of concern all the time, but there are also variants of interests, VOI, variants of concern, VOCs, and variants of high consequence, VOHC. And the way that the experts decide whether a new variant qualifies for one of those strata is to consider whether that variant compromises our ability to detect, prevent, and treat COVID. So detection via testing, obviously, treatment via things like our monoclonal antibodies, and prevention via the vaccines. The good news is that variants are popping up all the time, which is not good news, but the good news is very few make it into those top three strata. And so far, none have entered the very top stratum of variants of high consequence. A variant of high consequence would be one that is really compromising, that our vaccines have no impact on whatsoever. We've had none so far. But variants of interest and variants of concern keep on popping up. So what happened was we had the original Wuhan strain back in 2020. Then we had Alpha and Beta and so forth, Delta. Omicron came along in 2021, and that changed the world, as we all know, because Omicron is so hyper, hyper contagious that almost everybody became infected. And Omicron had a bunch of kids. And those kids had a bunch of kids also. So the new monovalent vaccine that's coming out now is tuned to one of the grandkids of Omicron, XBB. But since that vaccine was developed, new grandkids have come out, further descendants of XBB and cousins of XBB, 
um, BA286, for example, but they're all still Omicron. So right now, the super variants that we're looking at are pretty much all descendants of Omicron in one shape or another. And that means that the tools that we have to combat Omicron should still work to some extent against these new variants. That's a really good summary. And thanks for giving us the history of that, because it's easy to forget even about how could I even forget about Delta, right? Yeah. You, you mentioned that. And I thought, <laughs> of course, we had Delta. How could I forget, right? As of right now, we have a monovalent vaccine from Moderna that's been approved by Health Canada. And it's showing fairly good efficacy. I think yeah. that you have delved a little bit deeper into the literature. You were speaking quite positively about it on online. Yeah, I really like this vaccine in the sense that it, it uh, produces good neutralizing antibodies against the dominant strains that are currently circulating. Here in Canada, EG5 is, I think, uh, the current dominant strain, if I'm not uh, incorrect. And it also produces neutralizing antibodies against BA286, which was supposed to be the big scary variant. And it was big and scary because it has so many mutations, there was con some concern that it would be able to evade our best immunity. By the way, it's not showing those characteristics. So that's the good news. Uh, the concern is that a further descendant of BA286, if it intermingles with some other variants and swaps genetic code, a descendant might actually be the scary variant that we're all afraid of. But so far, that's not the case. The new monovalent is producing antibodies that are effective against the dominant strains right now, probably better than what we've seen in the last couple of years, which is why I'm very optimistic about this vaccine. I think it has excellent probability of keeping people out of the hospital and out of the morgue, and a pretty good probability of preventing infection entirely, which is something we kind of forgot about. Right? It would be nice to have a vaccine that actually prevents infection and transmission, and this has a chance of doing so for many cases. Yeah, and that's something that, that we do certainly hope for. You know, at this point, most people, except you, I think, have had COVID-19. <laughs> I've not, yeah. A lot of people may be feeling, well, I've already had this. Why would I need a vaccine? Doesn't my immunity protect me? What is the literature that you've seen so far about how long immunity lasts right yeah. now? It really varies. There are so many studies, and the studies are contradictory in many cases. And I don't want to minimize natural immunity because it is real, in my opinion. Yeah. And it can be robust because you're getting, <clears throat> excuse me, you're getting exposed to the full virus, not just a spike protein. So it is possible that it's more a wider spectrum of immunity. The problem with natural immunity is uh, multifold. One is that you can't really control the dose that you're getting. So perhaps a mild infection does not warrant or does not produce the same amount of immunogenic response as would a severe infection and as would a well-calibrated vaccine dose. That's the first thing. So vaccine doses are calibrated, they're measured to give us optimal immunogenic responses. Infection is not done so. Second is that infection carries with it a risk of bad things, of bad outcomes, of long COVID, and so forth. So do not seek infection for immunity's sake. But infection-acquired immunity, the duration of immunity is hard to say. And I haven't seen any studies that look at infection from the current strains. 
some of the better studies looked at in immunity from infection with early Omicron, and that seemed to offer a few months of, uh, of immunity. Again, not neutralizing immunity, just immunity against the worst outcomes. Again, I don't want to minimize infection-based immunity, but vaccine-based immunity is always the preferred path. Yeah, and a safer path, which is what you said there. As far as the symptoms go, what are we seeing? Is there any variation with symptoms with these new variants? I've heard not really. maybe less fever, maybe more runny nose. Yeah. I don't know. So the reports, again, are contradictory, and I'm always wary about these case reports. Yeah. So early on, people were saying that EG5 and XBB, the fever wasn't present, the loss of taste was not present, but then in some cases it was. So it's dangerous to say, well, I didn't get these symptoms, therefore it's not COVID, because you might be amongst those individuals for whom those symptoms did not manifest. What seems to be universal is that the standard symptoms for Omicron still apply. Omicron is an upper respiratory infection, which in many ways is a, is good news, because I'm an asthmatic, the prospect of a lower respiratory infection is terrifying to me. So it is less likely to be insulting towards your lungs, but more likely to be insulting towards you know, the head area with muscle pains as well and fever, runny nose and things like that. Unfortunately, it also resembles the flu and the common cold and RSV and you know, HMP, all these other standard upper respiratory infections. It's just that it carries with it a higher risk of death and bad outcomes. Short answer is it's complicated. <laughs> Even shorter answer is it looks like pretty much every other version of Omicron, which is upper respiratory. Yeah. And I'm going to throw a little question at you just because uh, I'd like your perspective from someone who uh, has a degree in public health. When someone says, well, COVID-19 is just the flu. Mm. And it does sometimes just look like the flu, Right. How would you respond to that person? Because influenza is a totally different virus, yet we yeah. do see some of the consequences from influenza or the longer-term consequences like a higher risk of myocardial infarction or other cardiovascular events do happen with influenza. They do happen with COVID as well. But I think it's, you know, we've all heard this comment. Well, it's just like yeah. the flu. Why should I worry about it? I think a lot of people don't know what the flu is. A lot of people think a bad cold was the flu. No, the flu is a horrific experience for those of us who've had the flu. It can knock you out for weeks. It can render you close to feeling like you're close to death. The flu is horrible. So in that sense, it is kind of like the flu. It can be horrible. So when people say it's like the flu, what they actually mean is it is not serious. Yeah. What they don't understand is that the flu can be serious. And every measurable metric shows us that COVID is far more serious than the flu. Even with vaccination, the um, hospitalization rate, the infection fatality rate are greater than that of the flu. So at a population level, the impact of COVID, negative impact of COVID on the population is demonstrably and significantly more so than the flu. But people aren't thinking like that. They're thinking about what does it mean for me as an individual? And the truth is, for most individuals, you're going to have a manageable experience. It's just that every manageable experience comes with the risk of something far more serious. And COVID has a much higher risk of something far more serious. And a much higher risk of something far more serious happening to somebody you love because you got infected. So it's a complicated, nuanced answer. And 
part of the challenge in talking about this disease is that people have a tough time separating individual risk from population risk. As I mentioned, the, the individual risk for a lot of people is not appreciable. The population risk is substantial. Yeah, and I'd also like you to comment a little bit on what we know about long COVID. So that's one of the risks yeah. of infection. And there seems to be a lot of confusion out there about, even in the literature about, you know, what percentage of people might get long COVID? What yeah. even is the definition of, do we have a definition for long COVID? Yeah. Right. So the answer is no, we don't have a definition. There are attempts to do so. And you know, for a while, the definition was symptoms lingering X number of weeks past the end of um, the acute infection phase. And other people would expand that number of weeks. And what are symptoms? Is it a nagging cough? Is it fatigue? What is it? The other challenge is a lot of this is self-report. So that is subject to a lot of subjective bias. Early on, the thought was about 10% of cases would manifest something resembling long COVID. That's probably too high. Now, most people are citing somewhere between 2 and 5% of infections would render a diagnosis of long COVID. But long COVID, it might appear a month after infection. It might be a year after infection. That is unclear. Some good news, though, is that there's some new studies coming out showing that there might be some measurable blood indicators, suggestive of a long COVID experience. So if we can measure this objectively with a blood test, that will help enormously. The other good news is that vaccination appears to reduce the risk of long COVID and the duration of long COVID. So even if you have a breakthrough infection and you're vaccinated, you are less likely to experience the worst of long COVID than if you got infected without being vaccinated. And we have other drugs like metformin and, and Paxlovid that seem to slow the duration, shorten the duration, and lower the probability of long COVID as well. This is an emerging field fraught with controversy and disagreement. And I know my answers so far have all been, it's complicated. And because it is complicated, the debates are ongoing. The papers come out every week and they're contradictory. So what we need is some sort of conference to nail down a solid definition of long COVID. And from there, work towards a, a diagnostic criteria, and treatment protocols. Yeah, and it is a new virus, right? So it's been with us for three years. It feels like it's been with us forever, but mm -hmm. it still is a new virus. We're still learning about how it behaves, how it mutates, yeah. that kind of thing. I did hear recently that Akiko Iwasaki from Yale has is doing research on this, right? Well, she has been for quite a while. So, you know, that's definitely encouraging, right? But uh, yeah. It is and like I said, still... the two, I said two to five percent. That's a big number. That's a pretty big number. If you're looking at millions of people being infected every year, that's a substantial percentage of people who will be rendered to some extent disabled, perhaps temporarily, perhaps permanently. It's unclear. So this is not something to sneeze at. No pun intended. Even if it's less than one percent of cases, with a large number of people being infected regularly, a, a tiny percentage of that large number is a substantial burden on our healthcare system. 
Yeah, and it's incredibly devastating. I'm part of a couple of long COVID groups on social media and to see the posts daily of mm. people who cannot function, they cannot hardly get out of bed. It takes everything they have to get out of bed. I, I know there's different degrees to long COVID, but for the people that are out of work, for the people that this has really been incredibly debilitating for, it's really significant. And it does have an impact, like you're saying, on our population. And it's something that I don't know if we really understand the degree to which this is going to impact us long term. The sad part is that many of us warned of this years ago, that this is something we have to keep an eye on, and it's one of the primary reasons to avoid infection, even if you think you're going to have a flu-like experience and come out the other end fine. There's a small but real chance you might end up, to some extent, disabled by this. So nothing is needs that, like I said. You mentioned the medication metformin. Now, I saw that paper or one paper that came out about metformin, but I didn't have a chance to dig into it. Uh, what do we know about metformin right now? Again, my answer to everything is uh, thoughts and opinions are emerging about this, but it looks like it is one of the few drugs that seem to lower the intensity and duration of long COVID. I'm curious to see if berberine would have the same effect. Berberine is a, an over-the-counter analog of metformin, has a similar pharmacological effect. So I'm hoping someone is studying that, but it appears to have, you know, reducing the duration of long COVID. Significantly? Not really, but it has clinical significance, but it's not a magical cure. Nothing is yet. So we know that the virus can be transmitted through the air, and it probably is primarily transmitted through the air, if I'm not mistaken. What do you think we should be doing as citizens in our day-to-day -day as far as trying to avoid? And do you know how, like how long or how much viral load does a person need to be exposed to in order to contract infection? Like going to the grocery store, should you be wearing your N95? There's... Right. right. Good questions. And as the new variants emerge, one of the um, questions are always asked, is the infectious dose changing? Yes. Is one of the reasons for increased contagiousness that we need is that we need lesser and lesser infectious dose to acquire transmission or to achieve transmission. So I'm clear about that. Some people say that's true. Some people say it isn't. Some people say it's more about the binding efficaciousness of the virus. And that seems to be true that the, the new variants seem to be increasingly better able to attach themselves to our cells in which case infectious dose really is uh, diminishing. Um, one of the ways that masking works is that masking reduces the time or extends the time before you acquire infectious dose. So if you imagine that you're walked into a room and there's virus all around you, um, you're going to get infected eventually. The question is, how long does it take? And a mask just lengthens that time. Different quality of masks lengthen that time at different amounts. So before Omicron arose, we had a pretty good handle of what that length of time was. An N95 allows you to be swimming in a room full of COVID for hours, two, three, four, five hours. But with new variants, it's probably down to maybe less than an hour, I would guess. But again, that comes down to a lot of factors. How much is floating around? Um, how well you're wearing your N95? Uh, how much 
neutralizing immunity you happen to have as well uh, as a result of vaccination or previous infection. But the question was, what do I recommend? I recommend that if you're going to be in a high-risk area, you wear a good quality mask, like an N95 respirator. Uh, what is a high-risk environment? A healthcare setting absolutely is a high-risk environment. A crowded indoor setting, like a book reading in a bookstore or something like that, or a classroom. I'm giving a lecture in person. I'm, I'm wearing a mask. Grocery stores are harder. Now, I, to be honest, I don't always wear a mask in grocery stores. If it's sparsely populated or high ceilings, I feel that ventilation is, is good quality. I have my CO2 monitor that I occasionally take out to see what the quality of, of ventilation is. And in my experience, large malls and uh, grocery stores have actually been pretty good. And someone's going to hear this and freak out on me saying, you're spreading COVID minimizing disinformation. I, I think we have to you know, calibrate our individual risks accordingly. So what I do is I look at a situation like a grocery store, which I would rank to be low to moderate risk. And then I would throw in what is the burden of COVID in my community. And if the wastewater signals are low, I would say that those two pieces of information combined give me confidence to go into a grocery store unmasked. However, right now, where I live, the wastewater signals are climbing high. And if I go into the grocery store and it's crowded, I'm going to wear a mask. Right? But again, um, this isn't a, a, a constant thing that I do. The other thing to consider is, of course, ventilation. We should be advocating for improved ventilation everywhere. The data is pretty clear on this. Ventilation works. HEPA filters work. Opening a window works. And we've had three years to make improvements in places like schools. Uh, and we've, we've squandered that time. But we have time still. We have time to create better lived environments, time to re-engineer our schools, for example, so that for decades hence, they are not respiratory disease factors. So hopefully this is a wake-up call. Why do you think we've been so slow to pick up on these, uh, what seem to be fairly simple strategies? I'm going to be conspiratorial-minded for, for a moment. If we're going to make engineering infrastructural changes to things like improve ventilation in schools, that costs money to be spent organizationally. On the other hand, you can tell people, go get vaccinated and wear a mask when you want. And that is downloading responsibility onto individuals. So it's easier and more politically expedient and short-term cheaper to download responsibility onto the individual, which is short-sighted because it's actually cheaper in the long run to make infrastructural changes, which is what we should be doing. So it's political short-sightedness and failure of imagination, frankly. And hopefully we'll get over that within a couple of election cycles. And hopefully it won't be too late before we do that. Yeah, it seems like it's just such a simple solution, right? Especially when we think about schools. I know that a lot of schools, even in British Columbia, there was funding given to the schools to upgrade ventilation. Mm. Um, and some schools, you know, they were able to upgrade their, I guess, central HVAC. Other classrooms got their own HEPA filter. But the thing is, a lot of teachers aren't even turning these on. Like there's a lack of too loud. education that, yeah. you know, and some people say, well, they're too loud or. Yeah. I, I mean, look, there's one on my office right now. Can you hear it? No. no I can't. <laughs> right. And it's on max. So mm -hmm. private schools have them. 
And look at what the World Economic Forum and Davos, look at their COVID restrictions and their they, they've got the best quality restrictions. So if it's good enough for the wealthiest among us, it's good enough for the rest of us. And I was going to also ask if you've seen anywhere in the world where they seem to be doing this right. And so I guess you've just given me a couple examples. Yeah. Yeah. Anywhere where there's extreme wealth, they seem to do it right. You know, Hollywood film studios or filming centers, because they understand the insurance costs. So they make sure vaccination mandates are in place. Masking is well considered. Sick people aren't allowed on set, that kind of thing. Those things work. Keeping symptomatic people out of the work environment has always been effective. Yes, asymptomatic transmission is a thing, but symptomatic transmission is more common and more potent. So if you can remove a sick person while they are symptomatic, then you reduce the probability. I think what a lot of people forget is this is all about reducing probabilities. We'll never remove the risk outright, but layer by layer, reduce the probability of infection and you'll do fine. Like this t-shirt that you gave me the first time I was on the show, it says, don't let perfect be the enemy of good in the back. And this is what we're all about. It's kind of like mask wearing. Yeah, the N95 masks are better than the surgical masks. And the surgical masks are better than nothing. So you do what's better than nothing rather than nothing, frankly. Completely agree. As far as the seasonality of the virus, we are seeing waves of infection. Are we seeing any real kind of seasonality at this point yet? Or So what is seasonality? I think there's a misunderstanding what seasonality tends to be. Seasonality it isn't something magical where the virus um, goes on vacation in the summer and comes back to work in the winter. Seasonality is driven by human behavior. So in summer times and in warm times, people are outside more. They're in well-ventilated areas. Um, they're moving about. There's space in between. And in wintertime, we're indoors clustering. That's what's driving seasonality, as opposed to the flu, where the, the flu virus kind of goes around the world in a certain predictable way. With COVID, it seems to be driven by human behavior. So that's what's going on. And that kind of brings up the conversation of epidemic versus endemic. What does endemic mean? Endemic pretty much means that it's always around, but there's still going to be a wave-like behavior. So we have a, an, an endemic disease right now that still experiences waves. So here in Ontario, we have a wave of COVID starting. That'll probably diminish sometime in a couple of months. We can force it to diminish faster. We can force it to diminish by vaccinating and by strategic mask wearing and so forth and forced into remission for a few more months until it gets warm again and risk comes down substantially. This is manageable. You know, it just takes personal and political will to do so. As we're moving forward, it's clear that this virus is not going anywhere. I don't think that anyone's talking anymore about herd immunity at this point. Moving forward, what do you think are going to be our biggest challenges? Big question. So assuming nothing else happens, assuming no technological achievements are afforded us, and by the way, I think some are coming, which we'll talk about as well. The challenges are going to be, is this a slow-moving extinction-level event, <laughs> which is a horrible thing to consider. If every year everyone's going to be infected two to four times, and every year a percentage of those people are going to die, and every year a percentage of those people are going to get you know long COVID and some level of disability, then over the course of many decades, those numbers are going to mount substantially. So the challenge is, how do we manage a society with dwindling capacity to function? 
as a result of this uh, mounting burden. That to me is the biggest population challenge. There are communication challenges, convincing people that in fact is what we have to deal with. We could continue on with the current vaccination strategy, wherein we update them regularly like the flu vaccine, but then we're we're playing chase the variant. Right. Yeah. And so far we're losing Chase the Variant, which is surprising to me because it took, do you know how long it took between sequencing the original Wuhan strain and producing an mRNA vaccine? It took bad. 48 hours. Yeah. 48 hours. Right. And that piece of information to me said, of course, we're going to win the variant war because every time a new variant is detected, we'll just crank out a new mRNA vaccine. I didn't consider the challenges in administration how long it takes to get the data and to convince people to license it and then to put it through manufacturing and so forth. The human aspects of it is what slows it down. So we would lose the arms race against the variant. Um, so what we need is a different kind of vaccine. And we're going to get that different kind of vaccine. I'm talking here about mucosal vaccines. The data looks really good to me. Animal studies on a variety of mucosal formulations shows titers that are greater than the intramuscular versions of those same vaccines with neutralizing antibodies in the mucosa being much higher as well. And that suggests that a mucosal vaccine would substantially slow, if not outright prevent transmission. And that would, you know, make this uh, a disease not to be thought about anymore if we can manage that and the mucosal vaccine is also more easily delivered intranasally for example we have some already out there india has one uh, incovac it's called which was actually developed at the university of washington they couldn't find a, a western drug company to take it over but india bought it and manufactured it we don't really have any good data about whether or not that vaccine is preventing transmission but we do have good data that it is superior to its intramuscular version and that it is producing high quality antibodies. So it's definitely doing the job of keeping people out of the hospital, but we don't have the data showing it's preventing transmission. Though we have uh, Moderna has an intranasal version of their mRNA vaccine that looks to have really good laboratory data. It needs human trials now. And there are at least a dozen more Try, um, uh, candidates that are being trialed. It comes down to the money. Who's going to pay for the, the RCTs? And then which drug company will adopt it to put it into uh, mass production once they occur? But the capacity is definitely there to produce these things and to put an end to transmission, or at least to slow transmission substantially. So the challenge to me is, you know, obviously if nothing else changes, slowing down this enormous disability machine. But the real challenge is finding the political machination to get these mucosal vaccines well-produced and into the appropriate hands. Will the the disease peter out on its own? Always possible. It's always possible it'll find uh, a superior variant that in fact is minorly detrimental to us, but highly contagious. It's always a possibility, but we can't bank on that. We can't bank on an accident of evolution. Mm-hmm. So for someone who has been home for maybe the last two or three years and they've been able to work from home and they've been able to protect themselves successfully from this virus and they're thinking about 
going back to work, what do you think this person might want to consider before yeah. making that decision? This is an actual question from a viewer. Yeah, I, I'm in that same predicament. I've been home for three years and now I may have to teach in person. It comes down to where you work, what the situation is in your workplace. So hopefully you have sick days and your employer will allow you to stay home if you're sick. More importantly, your employer allows your coworkers to stay home if they're sick because you don't want to be exposed to sick people. It's just not cool. You should feel comfortable in wearing a mask when you think you need to. I'm not going to be that person that says you should wear a mask all the time forever. No, we have to you know, learn to live a life that you feel comfortable with. And not everybody's comfortable wearing a mask all the time. But if you think there are sick people about around you, and if you think that the, the burden of the disease is high in your community, then you should feel comfortable in wearing a mask. You can get a personal HEPA filter for your office or workspace. You can talk to your employer about improving ventilation quality in your workplace. You can also talk to your employer about regular testing, rapid testing. We haven't talked about rapid testing, and the rapid testing still works. Um, if you test positive, you can take that to the bank. If you test negative, you should probably test again if you're symptomatic. You know? um, but rapid testing is an underused tool that employers can implement in their workplaces um, uh, to make appropriate decisions. Now, obviously, there's some human rights considerations there. There are some considerations around people who don't want to be tested. And what happens if you test positive? Will you lose your job? Will you have to stay home? Whatever it might be. I think what we have to do is normalize responsible behavior. And that means an employer needs to normalize accommodation for people who are sick or who are afraid of becoming sick. It's a new reality we have to learn to work with. But for people who are who have the option of staying home, I would I would bounce back and forth. Right now what I do is I, I go into work when I feel comfortable in doing so. I'm privileged. I have that kind of job. A lot of people don't. But if you are similarly privileged, you go in on comfortable days, wear a mask if you if you can. By the way, you can also get really good quality reusable masks like the flow mask, which okay. is expensive, but you could buy the filters and they're really comfortable. People swear by them and they are N95 quality, but they're for everyday use and they're, you know, you don't go through boxes and boxes of N95s anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, get up to date on your vaccination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's coming this fall. Should be yes. So pretty soon. word is we'll start getting them end of October, but they'll be prioritized in most provinces to high-risk individuals, so long-term care, immunocompromised um, people. So for everybody else, it may not be until a month or two later that you have access. Or if you want to skip over to the, the border to USA, just walk into a Walgreens and get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you touched on the point of rapid testing there which we hadn't discussed. I'm glad that you brought it up. I, I have a family member. So so we test whenever there's a symptom in my household, we test yeah, because we don't want to give this to anyone else, right? So yeah. it's so fine. You just have a runny nose or you're just feeling a little under the weather. But we test because we don't want to be part of the problem, right? Yeah. I have a family member who tested positive for 16 days, right? Wow. Which was astonishing. So do you think people should be testing before they go back to work? They're feeling fine. That's kind of uh, that would be a responsible thing to do. Yeah, it's unlikely 
that if you're asymptomatic, you would test positive. It's unlikely, but it's possible. Yeah. Here's the thing about rapid tests. They're um yeah, their effectiveness has evolved as the variants have evolved. Um, as I mentioned, if you test positive, you can take it to the bank that you've got COVID. Rapid tests don't test infection. They test really viral load. So you can have a very low viral load and be infected, but not trigger a positive rapid antigen test. And also, two things to consider in the rapid test, the darkness of the line and how long it took for the line to appear. Right. So the longer it takes for the line to appear, the less viral load you have. The lighter the line, the less viral load you have. If the line appears, you've got some viral load, you are a threat to others. But you may not be as much of a threat um, as you might think. So if it's, if it's really light and it took like 10 minutes to appear, you might be a threat to the person you're sleeping with. But you won't be a threat to people you walk by in the mall. Probably, right? On the other hand, if it appears right away and it's dark black, oh, you should stay away from everybody. <laughs> right? So this person who's testing positive for 16 days, maybe at the end is really light, maybe it took a while to appear. In that case, they can, you know, it's dangerous for me to say, but there's an argument to be had that they can go back to work if they wear a mask and you know, be careful because they're not as much of a threat to others as they otherwise would have been. Yeah, I think the danger is more so in never testing and just... Yeah you know, just moving on to saying, well, it's just a cold, right? Yeah. There are people in our community who are very much more susceptible to more, the more serious outcomes that you right. discussed. And people are afraid of testing positive. I get that. I, I've been there when I've been really symptomatic. I'm like, do I want to test? I mean, what do I do with this information if I test positive and I haven't tested positive yet? So I get it. If you test positive, you have to make decisions now about staying home. Maybe you can't afford to stay home. Maybe you're you're afraid of, of you know of the mitigation steps you have to take next. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is also responsibility, and responsibility can be disconcerting to a lot of people. But I encourage people to to embrace that responsibility. That's how we get through this. Mm-hmm. I always like your approach because you're always up to date on uh, the latest information. But it's also practical things that we can things that we can actually do and and cope with from home. You know, yeah, your, your life's got to go on. I get that. I mean, you say we have to, yeah, we, we do have to live with COVID, you know, um, but living with COVID doesn't mean we don't pretend it doesn't exist. It just means we have to accommodate it in our lives, make a few choices here and there. Yeah. You have watched this pandemic play out since the beginning, and I think you've been extremely up to date. You're still doing media interviews, but I'm curious, what most has most surprised you about the trajectory <laughs> Of the, I know it's a loaded question. Yeah. It, yeah. The disease has surprised me. Yeah. To some some extent. It's people's reactions to the disease that has surprised me, honestly. And this is fairly obvious, I think. Pandemics have a history of, of exacerbating the divisions in society. And it was fully expected that we would see socioeconomic divisions exacerbated. The poor struggled the most. The poor had to go to work. The poor were less likely to be tested and more likely to have bad outcomes because of bad nutrition and other situations. That was expected. The political divisions I did not see coming because I'm stupid. <laughs> so I don't the think extent, any of us saw this coming. Right? And it has not stopped since. And the, the political divisions have been jumped upon by foreign disinformation merchants for 
foreign intelligence gains. It's come with an anti-science narrative where healthcare professionals and scientists are now enemies of a lot of people, which is crazy. Originally, a lot of us were so eager to do our part, you know, to contribute. But in doing so, we became public enemies for a lot of people. And it's now dangerous for me to be seen in public in some places. For example, I get death threats and other kinds of threats simply for talking about this disease. Health, actual healthcare workers get threatened. Journalists get threatened all the time. One of my people I really admire is Dr. Peter Hotez, a vaccine maker and pediatrician. And his life is completely upended by people threatening him all the time. So that was surprising to me. I don't know what we do next, but I do know we have to remake society in certain constructive ways. The, one of the biggest failures here has been communication. You know, like we can talk about that for hours. And I am trying to write a book now on what went wrong in COVID communication and how we can prepare for the next great emergency there. But we have to inoculate the population, pun intended, against bad ideas. And we do so with good science education. The fact that people don't know the difference between DNA and RNA is our fault. And that lack of knowledge feeds the disinformation. The fact that people don't know that a vaccine does not contain necessarily live virus, some don't. That's our fault. We should communicate that better. Um, and the fact that government has downloaded the responsibility for communication on volunteers like myself is unfortunate and in many ways a dereliction of duty. So it's unclear whose responsibility it is. I think it's the state's responsibility. So we have to remake society around a communications infrastructure. How do people get information, and how can they learn to trust that information? We have a crisis of trust, frankly. Trust in experts, trust in media, trust in government, trust in anybody who is not a member of my tribe. And that has opened the door to the grifter population, people who just exacerbate that distrust for profit. And the extent to which that group has been rabid has surprised me a lot. So that's my social commentary. The disease itself has been surprising in some ways. I didn't expect you know, the extent to which the, the variants emerge and continue to emerge at rapid rates. I didn't expect us to get a vaccine so fast. That was amazing. In some ways, if we hadn't had a vaccine so fast, maybe we would be a little more cohesive as a society, it would be more fear. And fear, in some ways, would have made us more, more unified. I don't know. Having a vaccine, I think, created divisions that nobody expected. So, yeah. Again, we could talk about this for hours. It's, I know, I know. We probably will at some point. <laughs> I know. And the human psychology behind it is, mm. you know, interesting, but also concerning. And the... I think the issue with the basic understanding, I guess, some basic principles of science, which you spoke about there, it was already there. This just kind of exposed them and kind of gave them a, gave this a platform to play out in a really terrible way. Yeah, we're reaping the, the dividends of poor investments in education over the past yeah. 30 years. Mm -hmm. And many warned of that 30 years ago, but now we're seeing the product of that. Any solutions? <laughs> <laughs> no Education. solutions in the short term. 
Yeah. We really have to reinvest in education from the ground up, including civic education, meaning understanding what government can and can't do, understanding what the role of different levels of governments are. Yeah. Um, but education across the board and civic responsibility education. So what does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to be responsible to other people? An amazing thing happened early on in the pandemic. I was getting endless amounts of emails, especially from Americans, frankly, asking me about their individual risk. Because I want to, I'm 28 years old. I'm fit and healthy. I want to go back to work. Why can't I go back to work? Because I'm, you know, my risk is low. Can you compute that for me? That's an example of hundreds of emails I got like that. So this obsession with individual circumstance was very telling and surprising to me. Our inability to communicate population risk is worrying. Example, the IFR, the infection fatality rate for COVID prior to vaccination was about 1%. And this was communicated across the COVID minimization minimalization of population you know, at light speed. Why should I be afraid of a disease that's 99% survivable? And in reality, you should be terrified of a disease that is 99% survivable. That's a very low number for an IFR. And uh, the example I give them is uh, a city like Toronto has, what, a million commuters every day going to work. If 1% died, that's what, 10,000 people dead? That's newsworthy, absolutely. And that happens every single day. That's newsworthy. Or if you had a 1% chance of dying when you cross the street, okay, you take a chance once or twice or three times. How many times will you be nervous before you're nervous crossing the street? So 1% chance of death is an enormous number. At the inability to, to separate the individual risk of a one-time shot at 1% death versus continuous risk for you individually and risk for your population. That was saddening to watch. It was a kind of a numeracy that I did not anticipate. We think about a numeracy, we think about the inability to do math, but a numeracy is about the inability to digest and appreciate the implications of math. That's what was missing. I, I'm fine. I tell my students all the time that no problems are solved with technological innovation. Technology is great, it helps, but often a technological solution creates as many social problems as it solves. This is one of those cases where a technological solution might be the only solution. A, a high efficacy, cheap, easily applied mucosal vaccine that doesn't include mRNA might be the best technological solution. The anti-vaxxers are less likely to be afraid of it. It's easily distributed around the world, stops transmission, done, we move on. For this particular emergency, the thing about COVID is it's, it is a canary in a coal mine. It has alerted us to what we need to do to prepare for the next bigger emergency. And on OES, bigger ones are coming. Avian, if avian flu goes pandemic, we're in big trouble. You know, it has showed us that we need to reinvest in our communications infrastructure, in our civics, in our vaccine manufacturing platforms, in our ability to engage the public in understanding vaccination, in our surveillance methodology. All these things we have to reinvest in vigorously at a time when we have less and less money to do these things. So we do have work to do, but it's not outside the realm of possibility. All these things are doable. It takes will. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, you've given us a, a lot of information and a great update as to 
what's happening with COVID-19 and what we can do as well to, you know, keep ourselves and our families safe and just reduce our risk, right, of these unfortunate outcomes like long COVID and things like that, right? So we do have the tools and we actually have quite a few tools and it's not just vaccination, it's also ventilation, it's being aware of your surroundings, right? We haven't talked about prophylaxis either, like the Invid nitrous oxide spray or iota carrageenan sprays. So there's some evidence that they work pretty well. So there's one called Betadine, which uses iota carrageenan. It's pretty cheap, get it at Walmart for a few bucks. Mm -hmm. And the it might be reducing the chances of transmission somewhat. So I just put that out there. There, there are tools out there we haven't even considered yet. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your knowledge with us. So thank you so much. It's <laughs> for, my pleasure. Thank you. For all the information. Yeah. All the best to you. Thanks.